This morning's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him and placed the child among them. And he said, Truly, I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. If anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person though whom they come, through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to, have, to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. See, you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. What do you think if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away? Will he not leave the ninety-nine on the hills and go to look for the one that wandered off? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he is happier about that one sheep than about the ninety-nine that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. If you'll pray with me. God, we just ask that your words speak to our hearts this morning. God, may your scripture reveal truths to us as we look at your word. God, we ask that you open our, our, our eyes, our ears, our hearts whatever you're speaking to us this morning. In your name we pray, amen. Well, I'm glad to be back in this space. I was excited that Pastor Sarah invited me to come back. I think that's a good sign. Uh, and it's always fun to come talk here and to talk at Bethany. And when Pastor Sarah and I were originally talking about what Sundays I could do, when I could fill in, the 21st came up, and she goes, ah, that's the first Sunday of the fair. I always love talking about animals when it's the fair. And for some reason, this parable is what jumped in my head first. Sheep, I love this story. And that's animals. That's very fair-like. So I, I immediately knew this was the scripture that I wanted to do. However, as I started looking at it and started really diving into it, the message I thought this was going to be is not the message it ended up being. This story appears twice in Scripture. It's there in Matthew, uh, but it also appears in Luke, chapter 15. I'm also going to read you this version, just so we can hear them both. So this is from Luke, beginning in verse 1. 
Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and his neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. This is a pretty common story. If any of you have gone through Sunday school or VBS, or you have kids that have gone through VBS, most likely this parable has come up at some point in time. It's usually presented in one way, with one kind of takeaway or lesson at the end. And as I was preparing this, I could hear my dad's words in my head. We grew up skiing, downhill skiing, uh, we used to go to the peak once a week, uh, and the ski pass that we had uh, allotted us one lesson every week through the ski school at the peak. And when I was in high school, my friends that also had season passes, it wasn't really cool to do the lesson. You know, we're teenagers. We already know what we're doing. I don't need to take a lesson. I've been skiing since I was four. But my dad's words were, no one's arrived, Sarah. Even experts need coaches and need lessons. You're taking the lesson. And he put his money where his mouth was. My dad also took the lesson, and he had been skiing since he was four. There's always room to learn, and there's always room to grow. And those were the words I heard echoing in my head as I read this story again. Because I think even classic stories can reveal new things. And so we're all on the same page. This is a parable. A parable is just a simple story used to illustrate a spiritual lesson. And Jesus talks in a lot of parables. Jesus uses at least 36 parables and over 100 metaphors throughout the New Testament. He's constantly speaking in these stories. He's speaking in them to help folks better understand what he's saying. But he's also trying to give people a new perspective. This parable is one of the 20 parables in the New Testament that's repeated. We hear them in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. God is speaking in ways that the people of the time would understand. And I don't know if any of you are shepherds. I am not. So hearing this story, the context doesn't really fit with me the same way it would as people of the time. So I had to do some digging. When we hear this parable in a VBS setting or in Sunday school or even the song Reckless Love, if any of you are Corey Asbury fans, it's often framed as if we are the one that went missing. The story is told that if you wander from Christ, if you are caught up in sin, if you wander from the church, if you leave your faith, it's okay. 
We can rest in the fact that God is going to relentlessly chase after us. He's going to bring us back into the fold and that he's never going to abandon us. He's going to abandon the 99 to come after us. We can kind of hold faith in that. It's really a sweet message when we think of our loved ones who may be wandering from their faith. It's a sweet lesson for children to think, ah, nothing I can do, even if I mess up royally, is going to separate me from God. And it is a great lesson. It speaks a lot of God's character. It speaks a lot of God's love to us. But as I was reading this story, something else jumped out at me particularly in the Matthew telling of this story. This begins with the disciples asking, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? That's what they're asking Jesus. We want to know who the best is. And he says, oh, no, no, it's not the scholars, it's not the disciples, it's a child. You must humble yourself like this little child. And in verses 4 and 5, he says, Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. As he so often does, God is not only calling us to act in a certain way on our own, but he's also calling us to respond, to be like him. Welcome the child and you are welcoming me. We are not passive bystanders in this situation. We don't just exist in this story. He's calling us to action. So this morning, we're going to do a little thought experiment where this is typically posed as you are the one who is lost, you are the one who's wandered away. This morning, I want you to think as if you were one of the 99. You are one of the ones that stayed. What happened to the one that went missing? How did that one become lost? I phrased my question very intentionally because when I first started having this revelation, my first thought was, well, why did that happen? Why would that happen? And then I remembered a training I did a few years ago, how to be a better supervisor. (laughs) When we ask, why did you do that? We're often prompting defensiveness in the other person. But if we can ask, what led to that? How did this become a thing? Then we can start critically thinking. Then we can start examining what were the steps that took place to get here. We can engage with it more civilly and we don't need to get defensive because I think that's where we need to be. We need to critically think as if we were in the 99. I did some reading. I found this lovely woman named Kelly Carruth Miller, who is a shepherd in modern times. Uh, She did not grow up being a shepherd. She found this kind of passion as a hobby farm in her adult life. And she taught me a lot about sheep in her article. Sheep naturally flock. They want to stay together. That's their only defense mechanism. In her words, if one has gone off alone, it is not their first choice to do so. 
A sheep is only going to wander off if the terrain makes it so. The land has somehow made them separate from their group and they can't get back. Or if they're sick or injured, they may think, I don't want to draw any negative attention to my group. I don't want to make prey come after us, so I'm going to go sacrifice myself for the betterment of the whole. Now, people do wander from their faith. It may be because of their own choices. But there's some differences between us and sheep. Sometimes the one can become lost or distant because of the 99. And I repeat that. One may become lost or distant because of the 99. Sometimes we are the terrain that pushes them away and they can't get back. We make choices that isolate people from the group, that isolate them from their church, or from our communities. Now, as we do this thought experiment, there's something that I want us all to remember and kind of a ground rule. God is the one who's transformative here. God is the one who is chasing after. God is the one who will be the bridge back. We can partake. We can be active in this process, but we are not the ones bringing God. We are also not the ones who are creating that transformation. So as I was thinking about this, what are some real-life examples of the 99 pushing out or cutting off the one? And then I thought of some big systemic ones. Ten years ago, which is hard for me to believe, I was a junior in college. I had applied for a summer job working for a youth mission uh, organization. I grew up here in Meadville. I went to First Presbyterian over on Liberty Street. And at the time, we did all of our high school mission trips through an organization called YouthWorks. I loved them. They were a blast to go on. I enjoyed getting to know their staff. Uh, when I was a sophomore in college, I was even invited back to the church to come on a trip as an adult leader. And while I was there as an adult, the staff we're like, oh, Sarah, you should really apply. You'd be great at this. You could do a whole summer of this. Now, at that point in my life, I was 21 years old. I had only existed here on the East Coast. I grew up here in Meadville. I went to college in Slippery Rock. All of the mission trips I had been on had been kind of in an eight-hour drive radius. Our youth pastor at the time, that was her rule. She'd draw a circle on the map and said, I'm not spending more than eight hours in a church van with you all. That's where we can go. My dad's family's from Michigan, so we'd, I'd gone there for family reunions, but really that was the furthest west I'd ever been in the United States. So in my head, when I applied, I knew that YouthWorks doesn't let you speak to where you're going or what role you do. They kind of put the puzzle together based on your skills and their need. But my whole life had been here on the East Coast, mostly in small towns. So I assumed I'm going to end up somewhere on the East Coast in a small town. God had other plans. 
I still got the small town. I ended up in Manderson, South Dakota, a uh, population of about 600. Uh, and Manderson is, exists on the Pine Ridge Reservation. I grew up here and in the public school system. I didn't know reservations were still a thing. We don't have any in Pennsylvania, so I had never really put any thought into that that was an option. But there I was, living on a reservation, doing short-term mission trips with senior high students. I very quickly learned that the history I had been taught in high school wasn't exactly accurate. The Pine Ridge Reservation is home to the Oglala Lakota people, they are amazing. They are a beautiful people with really wonderful traditions. But there's a lot of hurt and pain and isolation in their community. Their reservation is in the southwest corner of South Dakota in the Badlands. And if any of you have been out there, it looks like Mars. It is all sandstone buttes. There's not a lot of trees. It's very, very hot all the time. In the winter, it's very, very cold. It is not farmland, it is not sustainable in a lot of ways. Now the Oglala Lakota historically were nomadic people. They moved with the seasons, they went where there was food, and they went where there was shelter. But when the US government came through, they said, no, you can have this plot of land. And they gave them most of Western South Dakota, what is now Western South Dakota. But then resources were found in the Black Hills, particularly gold. And they said, actually, instead of all of Western South Dakota, you can have this corner. We need this part up here. And they were pushed and moved, and it was made illegal for them to leave their space. They had to stay in land that was undesirable, that was not fit for humans to live in year-round that was not sustainable for food or anything. The 99 made them the one and cast them out. Generations later, they are still dealing with that trauma. They are still living in isolation. The diabetes rates, the alcoholism rates, the suicide rates, are quadruple of any other community in the United States. The life expectancy of a man on the Pine Ridge Reservation is 44 years old. They're still living in that hurt. A local example that I thought of was the Fifth Ward community. I work at Women's Services and we have the HOPE project, if any of you have been familiar, Pastor Sarah is super involved um, on the steering committee. And it's modeled after a program in Pittsburgh, but it is a way to rebuild that community. Now I uh, grew up here in Meadville, my mom grew up out in Guys Mills, so Meadville adjacent. 
the four lane coming through wasn't really a part of her childhood, and my dad's family didn't move here until the late 70s. So the four lane also wasn't a part of their story. So I never heard those things growing up, but then as an adult, I started hearing these stories of how houses and businesses were torn down or moved so that the four lane could come through Meadville to make transportation easier. But in the process, they also cut off Fifth Ward in a lot of ways from the rest of downtown. They isolated Fifth Ward even more so than they were prior to that. Our amazing community organizer in the Fifth Ward community speaks very eloquently that the Fifth Ward has become known as the land of undesirables. Community meetings are intentionally set up without inviting them. Projects have been done for them without their voice included. They've been forgotten in a lot of ways. As the 99, we've cast out the one. But the beginning of Matthew kept ringing in my head as I remember these stories. We can't deny that that history happened and that even generations later, we're still living with that trauma or with those effects. But God has called us to so much more. God reminds his disciples, we are to humble ourselves like children and welcome in the children. We can be a part of that restoration of bringing the one back into the group. We are called to love the same way that God loves us. I also want to point out the, the verse in Luke. Luke 15, verse 6. The shepherd goes home then calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. Not only are we a part of the reconnection, we are also a part of the rejoicing. How are we celebrating that they're coming back to the fold? I think important, an, an important thing to understand as we look at this is also something else I learned this summer with Pastor Sarah, ironically. Uh, we went to the Trauma-Informed uh, Community Development Institute uh, in June. I went with Pastor Sarah and some of our Hope community staff, and we learned a ton. It is still processing in my brain. Uh, and Sarah, if you're watching the stream, I hope you get a giggle out of this because uh, it has taken me months to get to where I can actually process what we learned that week. But we learned about trauma-affected communities. We hear about post-traumatic uh, syndrome for people. We hear about how trauma affects individuals, but we don't often talk about how trauma affects a whole community. And this idea of trauma-affected communities speaks of trauma may not have happened to you individually. Trauma may not exist in your household, but you don't live on an island. 
Even if you don't experience trauma and your neighbor does, that affects how we are in community. We share the same schools, we share the same grocery stores, we share the same churches, we share all of the public space in our communities. So if trauma is happening to our neighbors, it is also happening to us. The pain of the one can affect the 99. It is really easy to say, oh, that's not my problem because it's not happening to me, or I don't live in that community, or, oh, Sarah, thank you so much for sharing a story about South Dakota, but I live in Pennsylvania, so it's okay. We are all connected. We share the same resources, so even if we are not a part of the hurt, it's still affecting us. But I think something that God has revealed to me in learning this is the inverse is also true. The health of the one affects the 99. We are called to be a part of that restoration. In our Hope community in Fifth Ward, uh, last weekend, we had our first consultative workshop. We gathered 39 community members that live in Fifth Ward and we talked about solutions to make the community a better place. Community members had their voices heard loud and clear. They got to speak to what change they wanted to see. They came up with ideas like a public first aid station. How do we change mentorship? Can we get older community members to mentor teenagers? What are we doing about transportation? Can we do mobile health clinics for those that can't drive or ride the bus into their doctors? It was amazing to be a part of that workshop, to hear community members speak to what they needed and how they could get it. Even if we're not a part of that community, we can be a part of the solution. We can provide the resources that we have, we can provide a listening ear, and all of us can rejoice in the reconnection. So even if this story is one that is familiar to you, even if you've heard it a million times, I hope you can still rest in the truth that if you are the one that has wandered, God will always come after you. God will never leave you alone. But I also hope you can sit that if you are part of the 99, you're called to action. You're called to welcome the one back and to rejoice in their return. If you'll please pray with me. Dear God, I pray all of us feel the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God, the kind of love that chases us down, fights until we're found, and leaves the 99. God, may this love be an example of how we love our neighbors, how we care for our communities, and how we rejoice in the reconnection of anyone who was lost. God, we pray this in your holy name. Amen.